Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi there, and welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy Coleman, your host, and I am excited for today's episode. I am joined by C.R. Wiley. He's worn many different hats. I'll allow him to introduce himself in just a moment. But we're going to be talking about some themes related to J.R.R. Tolkien and his writings, and even some aspects of his writing that is not as well understood by many. And even if you're not a J.R.R. Tolkien fan, if you haven't read his books, if you haven't seen the films, please please hang with us, because I think we're going to draw some insights that are going to be very valuable to you as a Christian. How do you engage this world that we're in? How does your family engage? How does your church engage? There's a lot of lot of gold that we're going to mine today. So, C.R. Wiley, thank you very much for taking some time to join us, and welcome to the show. Yeah, Andy, I'm glad to be with you. Well, would you introduce yourself to our audience and just let us know a little bit of what you've done? I said you've worn some hats, and I think that's accurate, but but who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor, and I'm, and I'm an author. I live in the Pacific Northwest, just outside of Portland, Oregon. And um, I had lived on the East Coast in New England for about 30 years prior to coming out here. So I've got two homes, a home in each place. And I'm a writer, as I noted. I've written a few books. I think we're going to talk about at least one of them today. And I've been a college professor. I taught philosophy for about a decade to undergraduates in Boston. And I've been a, well, I've been a real estate uh, investor, owned commercial real estate since the early 90s. And I've been a home improvement contractor. And so that gives a little bit of a taste of kind of some things I've been involved with. Yeah, I love it. You've seen things, you've seen life through a few different lenses. And I think that that can lend itself in many valuable ways as a pastor, as a teacher, in all of these roles. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I had a weird childhood and that, that's that been uh, a, a blessing in strange ways, uh, but it's kind of getting to your point about being able to see some things maybe that if I didn't have that weird childhood, I wouldn't be able to see. Yeah, and some things in our life that look like curses, sometimes God redeems those in powerful ways, and it's actually equipping you for ministry in ways that you may not be prepared for had that not happened. So it's a bit like J.R.R. Tolkien's writings. Things aren't always going so well, and they can't see what's going on. Well, with that segue, we're going to be talking about a specific piece of this literature that J.R.R. Tolkien put together. But can you just tell us a little bit about J.R.R. Tolkien and how his writings maybe have helped shape the way you look out at the world, how they, how you've been blessed by these writings? Oh, yeah. Well, he was a philologist. He was a professor at Oxford. Um, he um, obviously wrote books that lots of people are aware of. I think he was named the most influential writer of the 20th century by poll that was conducted by the BBC. And so he's he's a pretty big deal. Uh, he was involved with the conversion of C.S. Lewis. I don't know if folks know or appreciate that, but it was through uh, his friendship, or at least partly through his friendship, that C.S. Lewis uh, came to Christ. In terms of my own experience with him, I was first exposed to him as a kid. I remember my father 
reading a portion of uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. And uh, he wasn't the sort of person that read out loud to his kids. This was just an odd event. But that particular evening, what uh, he read just so arrested my imagination and captivated me. I couldn't just forget about it. And uh, a few years later, when I had an opportunity to look up Tolkien for myself, I, I did read The Hobbit when I was in junior high. So I've been a Tolkien fan, I guess, uh, even before I was a believer, before I was a Christian. So he's he's been a part of my life for a long time. Yeah, and I think many of our listeners have presumably read this material um, over the course of their lives, probably getting started as as young people. For our listeners that have not had the chance to grab a copy of The Hobbit or The, the Fellowship of the Ring, it does make for a really pleasant read, and it's an adventure, and it does grip you, and it speaks to you on many levels. Um, at times, you're going to be able to relate to the character, so it really is something to, to pick up if you can. And you've re- recently written a book called In the House of Tom Bombadil. Now, many who have relied on the films, on Peter Jackson's films in particular, will not know what we're talking about. Tom Bombadil. Who is this guy, Tom Bombadil? Apparently, Peter Jackson thought he wasn't worthy of inclusion, but it's clear you do. You see some value in Tom Bombadil. You think that the author saw some value in including Tom Bombadil in this, and you unpacked it in this book that was released, I believe, late last year. Can you just tell us a little bit about who Tom Bombadil is and just introduce why you find him significant? Sure. Well, for folks who've only seen the, the films, I'm actually pleased that Jackson left them out because I'm not a big fan of the films in general, and I'm not trying to talk anybody into seeing them the way I do, but but at least uh, because he didn't uh, include Bombadil in the, in the film version, I don't have to explain away anything that Peter Jackson did. So it's it's new material for people who are just familiar with the films. People who've read the books are puzzled when it comes to this character because he seems to be um, just sort of an arbitrary insertion in the minds of many people. Why is he even there? Because he doesn't seem to advance the plot. And that's actually, I think, the reason why Jackson left him out. It would have been a kind of detour in the, in the film version. And films, you know, they work differently than books. And so with uh, Tom Bombadil, what you have is if, the, if, if folks listening can remember The Hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin, we just, right when they leave the Shire, they're pursued by the Black Riders. Frodo, of course, has this uh, powerful magic ring, and he's been entrusted with bringing it to whatever you know final destination. At this point, he doesn't really know what that means, but he needs to get it out of the Shire and get it to Rivendell, I believe, at that point is all he's thinking about. And uh, they, uh, in order to get away from the Black Riders, the the hobbits go into this uh, mysterious forest that's known as the Old Forest, and it's a really frightening place. It's uh, full of malevolent trees, and of course, trees in this forest are able to harm you and uh, actually plot to do so. And there's one particular tree that's the tree that dominates all the others, and through its power to sort of uh, enchant a bewitch, I think probably is a better word, the hobbits brings them down to this uh, river called the Withywindle, where he's located. And before you know it, two of the hobbits are trapped inside the tree and um, 
A third hobbit uh, has been almost drowned. So the two hobbits that are outside of the tree are Frodo and Sam, and they run up a trail just shouting, help, help. And uh, out of nowhere comes this uh, voice that's singing a nonsense song, and he appears, and it's this character named Tom Bombadil. He's dressed in a bright, a bright blue jacket. He's got yellow boots. He's got a hat with a feather in it. Uh, he He's not quite tall enough to be a man, but he's too big to be a hobbit. And before you know it, this character, this odd kind of almost uh, a ridiculous character uh, is able to save the hobbits from the tree uh, with nothing more than a song. He does pick up a stick and beat the tree, but I think it's just more for emphasis. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so the hobbits are delivered from the tree and are invited to come to his home and they spend uh, two nights and a day there with Tom and his wife, Goldberry. And then after they leave the house of Tom Bombadil, they immediately get into trouble again uh, in a in a barrow where a white, which is like a, like a specter or a ghost, is dwelling. And they're nearly killed, and Tom saves them again. So th those are pretty significant things that occur. But in the course of their time in his house, uh, they're enchanted uh, by uh, not just Tom and his... Uh, capering antics, but his uh, lovely and graceful wife, Goldberry. And they learn uh, just by sort of seeing Tom in action that Tom is perhaps the most powerful creature in Middle Earth. Yeah. But he's completely sort of out of touch with the crisis of the, of the moment, you know, this impending war of the ring and all that stuff. He's just kind of blithely indifferent to everything and just sort of enjoying himself, uh, you know, in, you know, living between the, the, uh, the Barrow Downs and the old forest with his beautiful wife, Goldberry. <laughs> yeah. So, and so you're left with the, you know, follow, you know, there are lots of questions to follow. Why doesn't Tom help out more? He does save the hobbits twice. I mean, it's, that counts for something, but why doesn't he do more? And, uh, and then just who is this guy? You know, he's, he does actually appear to be more powerful than Saran himself. At least that's what we are led to, to, to maybe conclude just based on an event that occurs in his house. Yeah, he is this conflicting character who appears bumbling and goofy. He would be easy to caricature by a comedian today. And yet he has depth to him and he has understanding. And like you said, he has tremendous power, power. Um, that is not being used and wielded like others, perhaps, in the story. So it does draw up some interesting themes, and you've zeroed in on them. And I, I'm not going to cover all of them because I do want people to just— There's a your book is, is a good read, it's a rich read, and I would encourage them to go and, and pick up a copy. But one of the themes that comes up is this— because here's Tom Bombadil— you described it really well, so even if you haven't read the book, you have a good, good mind of, of what's going on. But it's almost this, this island of peace in the midst of danger. There's danger all around these woods. They're by these uh, dangerous graveyard. And here is this island of peace that the hobbits come into. And one of the topics that you do draw up is this idea of dominion. And dominion has received a bad rap in recent years. It's taken a, a thrashing and yet you actually look at this and, and see that there are some helpful ways for us to think of dominion um, and not just in the way it's parodied um, so much in the public today. Can you speak a little bit about how Tom Bombadil demonstrates dominion in a, in a more biblical sense? 
Sure. Yeah, there's this marvelous uh, exchange between Frodo and Goldberry. Goldberry is a water spirit, apparently. She's referred to as the river woman's daughter. Tom is the oldest creature in his own words in Middle Earth, and he refers to her as young Goldberry, which I thought I, I think it's kind of fun. <laughs> She's probably thousands of years old herself. <laughs> but uh, in this in exchange between Frodo and Goldberry, Frodo asks, who is this guy? You know, who is Tom Bombadil? And her response is initially the, the, the phrase he is. And it's as if that's enough. <laughs> and then Frodo uh, looks at her questioningly and she follows with state stating that he is the master. He's the master of, of water, wood and hill and that he's never been caught. Now, this is all supposed to explain who Tom Bombadil is. But what Frodo does at this point, as I think what we'd all do, and we, he can he infers from her statement that that the that the the land that they are in, the old forest and the Barrow Downs, uh, belongs to Tom. And so Frodo asks, "Does this does this all these does this strange place belong to him?" And and Goldberry is like, "No, of course not." That's how she responds. She says, uh, "Everything belongs to itself." I mean, you know, the various creatures of the forest they all belong to themselves, but Tom is the master. So somehow. This mastery that Tom embodies and the freedom uh, of the other creatures that are under his dominion are that you can reconcile them. They're, they're not his possessions. Nevertheless, he's the master. Now contrast that with the domination that we see uh, with, uh, say, Saran or Saruman. I mean, both of those characters are, I think, what come to mind when the term a dominion is raised. Yeah. When somebody mentions dominion, people think of something like Saran. And of course, if that's what comes to mind, you're going to be against it. But what I tried to do is I tried to, in the course of the story, show how these two different ways of thinking and exercising mastery uh, contrast with each other. Because I think I think uh, what we see in Bombadil is, is an unfallen dominion. And what we see in Saran is what dominion looks like in a fallen state. And I would say that um, many would try to present dominion today as domination. They're similar, but they're not the same. Um, they sound the same, at least, but they're not. In the same way that other terms have, have been manipulated and, and really stretched, like equity and equality, you can just see these comparisons but I also see these themes of stewardship being surfaced in this description of, of what Tom Bombadil is doing. He is stewarding the resources around him. He's caring for them in a way that, yeah, these other characters in the book are certainly not. We will return to the podcast momentarily. But first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. 
Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at ChristianEmergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.ChristianEmergency.com. And now, back to the show. One of the other things that you, you bring up that I found fascinating, you talk about the nature of knowledge and why we get knowledge, how we get knowledge. And I thought that this is really applicable to the world around us as we're, as Christians, regardless of what country we're in, we're trying to make sense of what's going on in the cultures and the societies around us. You make this distinction of the nature of knowledge and how um, some, uh, and you can talk more about this, are content to or excited to break things, to figure out how to control them, versus this idea of, communion or, or learning with something. Can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. So it, within Western civilization, we saw the rise of something that can, can be referred to as Baconian science. And Baconian science is experimental science. And it's got a number of, I think, uh, fine applications. But essentially what it tries to do is reduce things to the sum of their parts. So they, it, you know, you break things down into the, into component parts, and then kind of reassemble them in your mind, and you think you understand it or whatever you're studying, and maybe that's fine when you're talking about maybe chemical reactions or maybe the, you know, movements of the planets, you know, so forth. But when it comes to human beings or even other creatures, we're more than the sum of our parts. <laughs> you know, you, you know, you, you and I share. Uh, a lot of things in common. We have brains, we've got hearts, we've got livers, we've got limbs, all these different things. Uh, you could take us apart and, and reassemble us and we'd be dead because <laughs> in the breaking, you know, we would be killed. So the uh, thing that I think is a problem in our world uh, is this kind of reductionistic approach to understanding the world in which we live, but also the other creatures that we share the world with. And when we take this reductionistic mechanistic approach, we're tempted to try uh, or we're tempted to manipulate things to bring about the outcomes we'd like to see. So for example, in the story, I use uh, the encounter between Gandalf and Saruman. Saruman's another wizard. Gandalf, if folks are familiar with the story, is a very powerful wizard himself, but he's caught by Saruman. And Saruman wants to know something. He wants to know the location of this powerful ring, uh, because if he possesses it, then he'll possess the power of Saran and be able to become master of the world, at least in, that's what he hopes. And he uh, presents himself to, to, to Gandalf, and Gandalf had known him as Saruman the White, but Saruman presents himself as Saruman of many colors. And then he stands before Gandalf and he moves and Gandalf can see that his robe is kind of uh, uh, bewildering it. It, 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 stem, it demonstrates or portrays different kinds of color. And uh, so it's sort of like the spectrum that he sees when he looks at, at Saruman. And Saruman says, I'm now you know, Saruman of many colors. And then Gandalf says kind of you know, like uh, sarcastically, I liked white better. <laughs> And Saruman says, well, white's good for a start. You know, white's good. Uh, the white page, you can write on it. The, the white cloth, you can dye it. And the white light, you can break it. And then Gandalf says, in response, 
when you break something to know it or understand it, you've departed from the path of wisdom. And this infuriates Saruman. And, but I think what's being actually alluded to here is Newton's experiments with optics. I think this is a very subtle. So Tolkien was a great scholar. He knew all about the history of Western thought. He knew about Newton and his, and his experiments. And I can't help uh, but believe that this was a subtle critique of Baconian methods to know things. Now you contrast that with communion. So you and I right now are in conversation. Um, the point is not to break each other, to learn things from each other, to get you know you to do what I want or you to get me to do what you want. It's it's to to know each other and to be known by the other and enjoy each other's company, and that's what we see with with Bombadil. Bombadil is far more powerful than the hobbits. He could take the ring from Frodo at any moment. Uh, no problem. In fact, he does. <laughs> In fact, Frodo just even hands it over it when, when Bombadil says, show me the ring. And then he gives it right back. No other character in the story is uh, so in sort of a nonchalant uh, when it comes to the, the matter of the ring. In fact, I think uh, it's pretty evident that Bombadil thinks it's amusing and, uh, and mocks Saruman. I mean, not Saruman, but uh, Saran. But anyway, that, that's another contrast. So, you know, dominion versus domination, control versus uh, communion. So I think that, you know, in terms of how we exercise dominion, it's always with the idea that we commune with those that we oversee or are there to help or protect. And I think that that's part of the beauty of the church is that communion is the is the goal, not control, not to control one another or break one another. But many sense that they're living in cultures and societies that do feel very sterile, secular, that people are looked at as the sum of their parts. Well, you guys are good for this, but you're not good for that. Um, this comes up in a lot of your moral philosophical debates, like what is the value of a life? Is a person less valuable when they're older? Is a person less valuable when they're a baby? No, as Christians, we appreciate the richness of life and the beauty of God's creation. But when I was reading this, that's what came to my mind, and I thought that that was a very elegant way of drawing that out. I'd like to just make one one quick comment, if I may, Andy, at this point. I do think that sometimes pastors and church leaders fall into these traps. I think that they uh, confuse domination and dominion, and I think they confuse control and communion. And now there are times where you have to act in a very decisive and um, firm way. Don't get me wrong. I understand that that has, that, that, that's something that we have to do. But the outcome is always to, to sort of bring a person back to the freedom that they should enjoy in Christ, not to make them our robots or make them our minions and stuff like that. So yeah, there's applications for this just in our normal walk in the world around us. There's applications within the church and how we deal with one another. Like I said at the beginning, I'm encouraging people to to pick this up because there is some real stuff that gets discussed in this book that's very helpful in processing what's going on. CR, how would you describe Tom's example? How does that inform the way that a Christian can seek to live joyfully in a wild world? How can we live joyfully in a culture gone goofy? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, because certainly Tom lives in a dangerous neighborhood, as you noted, and there are these malicious 
neighbors. <laughs> yeah. And, and in the, there's actually a poem that predates uh, the, uh, the writing of The Hobbit that's entitled The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. So Tom is actually older than The Hobbit. And uh, he's brought in into The Lord of the Rings. If I remember correctly, the poem, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, was published in like 1934. And I think that The Lord of the Rings was like published in 53 or 54 or at least the first book was. So it's like 20 years uh, difference. So certainly Tolkien, you know, could have forgotten about him or left him out. Uh, he didn't make him up for this moment. He, he already had him in mind. But back to the idea that uh, Tom, you know, is joyful in this, this sort of terrible environment. I think he's a marvelous example to us as Christians when it comes to knowing good reasons to be joyful uh, when we are surrounded by wickedness and so forth. He takes interest in the world around him. He's, you know, thousands of years old, but he seems to be delighted in uh, everything he comes across. His environment is well-ordered and beautiful. He enjoys the company of his wife. And I think that it's because he's got an ability to receive the world as a gift. I mean, this is not something that's ever made explicit in the story, but I think it's implicit. He just kind of takes it as it comes and receives it joyfully. Now he does he does act forcefully when he when he needs to, as we saw with those two instances where he saves the hobbits. So you know it's important to keep that in mind. And I think that he knows that he's been given the gift of life, and that he's been given the gift of um, these other creatures to 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 know and to be with. And for those reasons alone, he's he's a uh, Happy, happy fellow. <laughs> yeah, you sense a gratitude there. He's grateful for the blessings he has, even in a tough neighborhood. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go just one layer deeper on that. You know, Tom's home is this island of joy, peace, and order in the midst of a frightening area. But I, I would wonder if you'd have words to share with Christian parents. Christian parents, um, maybe in Western nations, but I'd, I'd even pan the lens out to other countries around the world. Anybody's listening in Pakistan or in Iran or in they pick it up in China, these parents, how can they think through this as they seek to make their home a safe harbor in a world that is in many ways set against their their values, their faith? What would you say to Christian parents? Yeah, yeah, I think that the the good thing to keep in mind is that you have a, a, a great deal of uh, authority, even in the world we find ourselves in, to order your home's, you know, sort of uh, life. And because of that, you can you can do things that maybe other people around you aren't doing or wouldn't understand anyway. I think that you have to be aware of how the joy that you are striving to appreciate and uh, live in, it can be communicated to your, your children. I think that when your children uh, find joy in the things of God, it makes it far easier for them to sort of see through the facades that the world presents them with are really just ugly caricatures of what we as Christians can enjoy because we know how to use things in the right ways. So, you know, my kids are all grown now. 
Um, I've got three kids, uh, two are married. Uh, my two oldest, my, my sons are both married and have children of their own. And my daughter is engaged and will be married here in December. And they're believers and they love the Lord. And, but it was never a, it was never a kind of a, I don't know how quite to put this. It was never as though we've spent a whole lot of time focusing on making sure the kids were joyful. <laughs> in other words, that wasn't like a project. They were participating in the things that we were doing, and there was a lot of things to enjoy. I would say that, you know, there's the there's the obvious nuts and bolts stuff, like, you know, make sure that you have some measure of control over the inputs, computer technology, and stuff like that. I think it's important that your, your house is full of books. Hmm. I mean, really full of books. So, you know, we had, you know, hundreds and thousands of books around the house, and my kids are all readers now wasn't as though we made them read. It was just they they kind of saw us doing it and they wanted to do it too. And we always made sure that there was lots of really good stuff. So my kids are adults now and they're reading Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and stuff, you know, things like that. Um, more sophisticated stuff than I read. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're doing great. And then, you know, uh, worshiping as a family, praying for each other. My children knew that I prayed for them regularly. You know, I would go into the rooms at the end of the day and tell them stories when they were small and put my hands on their head and, and pray for them before they went to sleep. You know, little things like that make a big difference. Yeah. Parents have a lot of, they still have a lot of arrows in their quiver. Um, oh, yeah. There's a lot of opportunities, regardless of where you live, uh, to love on your kids and to, to show them the good. Um, I was reminded, so I, I had a conversation previously with Rod Dreher, who I imagine you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know Rod. So he he told this story, and it it's a powerful story. And like I said at the beginning of this interview, even if you haven't ever heard of Tolkien, it's worth getting your hands on because it plays out in some pretty powerful ways, and it has before. He told a story. Dreher shared a story of a, a couple, Václav and Camilla Benda, and they lived in Prague under the, the communists when the communists were in control. They had five children that were forced to go to these communist schools. The dad, Václav, was heavily persecuted. They were, as a family, heavily persecuted for the Christian activities. He went to jail for four years. So for four years, he separated from his wife and his kids. And um, just a, a very difficult set of circumstances. But Camilla just carried on and did what she could. Um, she had the stewardship opportunities that were still available to her. And she she described how they got through that and really how they got through that as Bible-believing Christians. She said that the most important that they did was that they would talk with them, with the kids, and they would try to help them to distinguish the truth from lies. But even more important was reading with them. They told stories. They shared stories, and they would read to them. You talked about how your dad read out loud, and that stood out. That wasn't something he normally did, but it had an impact on you. And they talked about how myths, good literature, and stories uh, were so helpful. But she zeroed in and said a lot of Tolkien. And that surprised Dreher. And he's like, why Tolkien? And she said, because we knew Mordor was real. Dreher thought about that more, and he realized that, you know, kids, they're not going to understand secular challenges around them. They're not going to understand what Marxism was. They're not going to really understand what their parents, what their dad was in jail for, or what their parents were struggling through, but they could understand Mordor, and they could understand dragons, 
They could understand what is meant for the fellowship to come together, what it means to risk everything for the sake of what is good. These kids were able to reason by analogy uh, to the people that would come to their house quietly in the night for prayer, and they'd kind of associate. They'd hold these little quiet Christian seminars in their home, um, do all these things to keep alive that which was good and true and beautiful, um, and to be faithful. Camilla prepared her kids through a moral imagination to not only hate what was evil, but more importantly, to love what was good. And it was Tolkien that really afforded that. So that has always stood out to me. That played out in decades ago under communism in an Eastern context. So like I said, we're talking about a, a book that's very influential in the Western sphere. But I, I would be I would love to hear from some of our friends from the Middle East, friends from Africa, friends from others, if they were to pick up this book or if they already have to share their insights uh, into this as well and how it may have impacted them. But that's why I'm very grateful that you wrote this book in the house of Tom Bombadil. Could you also, because I know this is a topic that you have spent some time on, how important is the household for waging spiritual warfare? How, how important is the family in that this big spiritual drama we're a part of? Oh, it's huge. It's far bigger than I think we appreciate. I think that we all have a sense that, you know, home life and family life are really important. And there have been a lot of people who've worked hard to help husbands and wives uh, and parents and children uh, love each other and work together. But I think that there are ways that we can see into the nature of things that give us an even more, I think, profound appreciation for the household than we might possess. So for example, the story you just told about this family in Prague is a marvelous example of how, you know, the state with its, you know, sort of a, the, its machinery and it's, a, and it's an effort to sort of bring about conformity and to oppress dissent and get everybody to, you know, doing what it, you know, whatever its dicta says they should do very much in the spirit of Saran or Saruman. Uh, how this this small group of people who are bound together by the God's covenant marriage and in, in, in love between parents and children is able to resist. It's this, uh, I, in one of my books, I describe it as the indigestible being. It's like, you know, when the giant takes a married couple and tries to separate them uh, and can't do that, uh, the, that means that uh, the household is not able to be broken down and sort of incorporated into this larger entity. So there's a, there's resistance built in to the marriage bond and that bond uh, in uh, homes that are blessed with children, you know, extends to the children. But I also think what we have is not only do we have sort of the first institution in this creation, you know, we think about Adam and Eve and the garden and the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But we also have a window into the new creation because Christ and the church are said to be what? The groom and the bride, right? So even the, the, the marital bonds that we enjoy in this world as we're enjoying this creation point forward to a final consummation in which we see a new heaven and a new earth, God coming to dwell with his people, all of these things we see in, you know, Revelation that are all prophesied, you know, in the Old Testament and then the new, everything kind of proceeding to that final great 
image that we have at the end of the of book of Revelation is the when we see the new Jerusalem is the bride. And we see that, you know, in that city that there will be no sun because the son of God is its light. So, so there's a, a much bigger, I think, story being told than maybe sometimes we know when husbands love their wives and wives respect their husbands and, and, you know, things are working the way they should be working. Yeah. And especially as much as the family and the family unit has been under attack and, and under pressure, but it is remarkable. It, it, it seems like we're at times vulnerable and exposed when really, like you said, we're, we're pretty resilient the way God has designed us and we can trust in him and we have to remind ourselves that we're in his hands. It's his power that can, can move. Yeah. I think our families and taking good care of our families, stewarding those resources well, uh, doing our best to exercise what we can from Tom Bombadil's example is very important in how we live our lives and to not underestimate that, not poo-poo it, not think of it as secondary, but truly as of primary importance in our lives and a joy. And it is a joy. I'm not going to give everything away in the book, but you've, you've really blessed your readers by this. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share about why you wrote this book or, or what you're hoping to accomplish through it? Well, I mean, I, I just have always loved uh, Tom Bombadil and Goldberry and what you see there in that part of the story. I mean, it's basically a quick read. It's just three chapters. You know, you've got in the old forest and you have in the house of Tom Bombadil, then in the fog and the barrow downs. So those are the chapters in which Tom appears. But he's 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 uh, referenced at other parts of the story. Uh, and Tolkien said that he represented something that he felt important. And he wouldn't have left them in the story if uh, he didn't think what he represented was important. So that's imp- that I think is important to keep in mind if you're a fan of Tolkien, that you can't really appreciate the Lord of the Rings without appreciating Bombadil. And I think he's enigmatic on purpose. An enigma is something that often is a puzzle that uh, just kind of uh, we spend a lot of time pondering and trying to understand. And I think that was intentional on Tolkien's part. But I think if you're captivated by the character, uh, if you can enjoy even his silly nonsense rhyming, <laughs> then you, I think, uh, are a candidate to be someone sort of like Tom, you know, who can just enjoy the world that you find yourself in, that God has placed you in, and enjoy the prospect of communing with those people and other even creatures around you. Well, like I said, I would encourage our listeners to go and get a copy of In the House of Tom Bombadil. Uh, CR, how can they go about doing that? Where, where can they purchase this? Well, of course, everything in the world can be bought on Amazon, apparently. So you can go there. <laughs> but there are other places you can buy it. You, know, you can get it at Barnes & Noble. Uh, you, know, you can get it in some bookstores. You, know, you can even go to the publisher, Canon Press, and order it through them. So there are different places that you, you you can find it, but it's available online in several places. And I know you're also active just uh, sharing your insights and speaking to topics of the day. Um, for example, I know you're very active on the Theology Podcast, which is a great listen for anybody that wants to go and check that out. Um, but how else can our listeners find out more about you or follow you in your ministry? Well, um, I do have an author website. Every author does these days. I think it's obligatory. <laughs> and it's not hard to find. It's crwiley.com. And when I've got stuff I'm ready to share, I put it up there. I don't do a whole lot with it. I mean, 
you know, you can find my books there and some reviews and some interviews like this. Um, I'm currently there. I've got a second book in my, I've got a young adult uh, series and the second book's about to come out. So I'm hopeful that that's going to happen for too long. I've got people who've been bugging me for years about that. <laughs> and then um, I'm going to be working on the audio book for the first book in that series. So hopefully by Christmas, that'll be uh, available. And then I'm working on a, a commentary on the book of Acts, but that's probably going to be a couple of years to finish. Well, you're a, a busy guy and I appreciate you sharing some of your, your precious time with us and in our audience. And I can't thank you enough for talking about this and Thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks, Andy. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll hopefully chat again sometime soon. All right. Look forward to it. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.